0: h-e-l-p dot slash sober. I'm Jill and I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. There are a lot of things that influence developing an addiction and none of them are that we're weak-willed losers. In the Sober Powered podcast, you'll learn how and why addiction develops, how alcohol changes the brain to keep us drinking, and most importantly, that you're not alone. The things you experience are experienced by many of us. Welcome back to the Silver Powered Podcast. I'm really excited today because I have another interview for you with Nikki Eisenhower, who is a licensed therapist, a life coach, and she hosts the podcast, Emotional Badass, Where Moxie Meets Mindful. And if you haven't checked out her podcast, you definitely need to do that. I'm going to link my favorite episodes in the show notes, but she is an amazing podcast host. The way that she talks and the things that she says just draws you right in. And I was so excited that she accepted my invitation to be on the podcast. Nikki is really passionate about empaths, highly sensitive people, narcissism, trauma, addiction, and personal empowerment. And in this episode, we're going to talk about our emotions. So we're going to talk about how to connect with your emotional self versus your thinking, rational self. How to break out of the mindset of needing to get to a certain point in your life to be happy so you're always on the move to the next thing. And we focus a lot on emotions emotions and you know that is something that I really believe is critical for maintaining sobriety and living a happy life. So we're going to talk about how to just be and not deal with constant overwhelm. A lot of us don't learn how to just be with ourselves and feel our emotions and why our emotions are okay and that they're not too much. And we also talk a bit about trauma and how that can disconnect you from your body, what hypervigilance looks like, and how to reconnect with yourself. So, if emotions is something that you struggle with, or maybe you just want to get a little bit better at handling them, I know you will love this episode. And after you listen, please make sure to check out the Emotional Badass podcast if you haven't yet. It is fantastic. Nikki also has a Patreon, which is in the show notes. She has some courses. So, let's get to the conversation. I've been a fan of your show for a while, and I was nervous to reach out. I wasn't sure if you would say yes you wanted to come, but I was so excited that you did. I was excited to be asked, so it was a happy yes, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So you are a licensed counselor and a licensed chemical dependency counselor. Um, What made you interested in working with people who struggle with Addiction and now you focus a lot on trauma too. Well, honestly, I didn't want to. (laughs) I really didn't
2: because I worked in bars. I'm from New Orleans and I worked in bars to get myself through school. Um, I paid for my own education. It was rough, and I finished college while I was trying to finish college when Hurricane Katrina hit, and so my master's program was blown out of the water. I came back to the state in the same in the same year and. The only internship that I needed to complete my graduate program was in addiction where I had a friend working there. And I was so frustrated. I was like, no, I'm trying to get out of bars. I've had enough of people who are drinking too much. And then I had to really realize, oh, wait, I am good at this. I have been talking to the same population well before I was a counselor. And so it actually became a really good fit. And I started my career. They hired me in that internship in addiction treatment. And I started my career working with addicted, um, public, but also doctors and nurses who got caught by the board, often diverting drugs from cancer patients in hospitals or failing addiction tests. And that really opened my eyes to addiction. If anybody has seen the, um, documentary called the pharmacist on Netflix, that's right where I started my addiction career, my counseling career. And addiction in Louisiana, especially right after Katrina was insane. They were handing out pills left and right. We already have a crazy drinking culture. So I, I really felt like it was like a baptism by fire of starting my career as a baby counselor, working with doctors who in addiction and doctoring, like that's a narcissistic, tough population. So it really, it was a tough start, but it, it really showed me a lot. And very, very shortly starting that work, they shifted me into trauma and addiction. So I did the residential treatment programs. And I ran tons of addiction recovery groups, I, I ran family groups, or sometimes I had 30 people with their family members. So Everything and anything that can happen in group therapy has happened while I've been there. People have shown up loaded. People have had fights like so I really got a baptism by fire and a a really great education. And I started seeing that when trauma was addressed for most people,
0: that addictive drive actually comes down. That's really interesting. And I was, that was my next question. How did you get into trauma? So I didn't know that you were just kind of swooped over there from your work with addiction. I was swooped.
2: Well, so I'm, I'm what we call an intuitive empath, which is very woo woo. And typically (laughs) you don't, you don't, typically you don't go into getting a master's degree and then become more Woo woo typically you dodge the career path and go woo-woo because <laughs> you don't have to go to the school. The addiction facility that I worked at I was working um, at the time I believe there were three, but I can't really remember remember it might have been five addictionologists in the country so doctors don't get as you were just interviewing a doctor recently I was listening to your show and she was acknowledging this doctors really don't get any training in addiction, which is bonkers because they prescribe all the things so that's really, really problematic and freaked me out. So I happened to wind up without even knowing what an addictionologist was, having no idea about any of this. I wound up working under one of the very few addictionologists in the entire country at the time. I believe there are more now. And he had trauma programs. He knew that trauma affected how we seek out substances and how we seek to Soothe ourselves. And I myself come from a tremendous trauma history. I'm an incest survivor. I believe my mother's a sociopath and my biological father is a narcissist. And then my mom married a pedophile who's also a narcissist. So I come from the land of lots of childhood trauma. And so in my own work, I have had to go through the layers and go through the acting out. Growing up in a New Orleans culture, I don't know that anybody anywhere in the world grows up with more vices in front of them. I remember being 18 and visiting Las Vegas for the first time and thinking, Ooh, I'm going to see all this sin and all, all, you know, all this debauchery. And I got there and it, it was a real culture shock for me. It really made me realize, wow, I am from the land of vices. This is really a thing. So That kind of between my own personal experience of having to do a lot of healing on my nervous system and having to sort out my own relationship with substances and process addictions. So we have process addictions that are the things that we get addicted to that we don't even have to put a substance into the body. And that's part of what has changed how I view addiction. Because I don't know that we have addiction in terms of a disease because the American Medical Association They were not allowed to medicate anything. It's against ethics to medicate anything that isn't a disease. So to be able to medicate for addiction, it had to be made into a disease. But if we look at process addictions, you don't put any substance into the body at all. Gambling, sex, shopping. And now, different than when I started my career, I started in 2006, we all have this cell phone, this damn computer in our pockets which proves to me that it's part of the human experience that if we don't have limits if we don't have boundaries if we don't know that it is our job to balance in this modern world of overabundance and indulgence we are all prone to addiction because you can't convince me that anybody with a modern cell phone isn't addicted to it proves that it really is this human experience and it's something that our entire human tribe would do well to start learning about young to stop demonizing our escapism because humans are going to want to escape. And if we don't start addressing that in a real reasonable way with people, the likelihood of people falling into holes of addiction is so much more likely.
0: Yeah. And this idea of escaping and like you have to wind down, like you got to get through the day and then come home and wind down or just get through this week to the weekend. And I think we're always seeking to like get through most things so that we can escape or we call it maybe relaxing or treating ourselves and what I have found just through my own experience is I was overwhelmed all the time I couldn't even understand like what was going on with myself because I was so overwhelmed and everything just felt so big and impossible to deal with. and I thought for me that alcohol was bringing everything down to a manageable level where I could deal with it, but really, I was dealing with nothing. And magically, when I stopped drinking, um, I didn't feel that overwhelmed anymore after you know a lot of therapy and stuff. But um, with your experience with trauma, what do you think about this like overwhelmed out of control? Like everything feels so big? feeling. I think we have an epidemic of not teaching
2: human beings about our emotional selves. The, the best way that I can show this to you is if I do a little exercise with you, actually, yeah. if you're willing, okay, if you close your eyes, and anybody listening can do this, as long as you're not driving, <laughs> you can do this along with us. But just bring your awareness to your heart as if your heart can breathe in, like your heart becomes a lung. You can visualize it as an anatomical heart or you can see the kind of heart that we draw on paper and just focus your awareness there and take a few breaths into that space and notice what you notice about your body. And on an in-breath... Shift your awareness from your heart space to your head and be there. Hang out there for a minute and notice what you notice about your body. Take another breath or two there. And then on the next in breath, go back to the heart and notice what you notice. Just by bringing your attention, your focus, your awareness to our heart. What does that feel like for you?
0: I think for me in the beginning, I was like, okay, am I, am I doing it right? That's my first yes. thought. Uh-huh. And then when I switched over to my head, I'm like, wow, this area is really buzzing. <laughs> yes. That was the difference that I noticed. Yes. Yes.
2: Someone said to me recently when I did that, I thought it was the most brilliant thing, that the head is like the city and the heart is like the country. Yeah, I like that. Uh Uh-huh. Doesn't that really get it? So what's happening to us in modern society, and for all of us who have grown up in modern society, is that we're a knowledge-based culture, especially with the introduction of the internet and Google. We really think, consciously and subconsciously, that information solves everything, if i just gather more information which is all head knowledge and it keeps us in this state of it's like a like a storm happening over our head of just more information and more information and more information every single client that i currently work with when they fill out my paperwork and i'm asking them questions about themselves i ask some questions about do you feel like you just can't get your body to feel what your mind knows And every single person chimes in yes with that. Because we are such a heady culture, we're overvaluing thinking. So what happens? We have some anxiety. We're overwhelmed because we, in in this era, think about the 50s. We are dealing with so much more. The internet, emails, customer service, cell phones, People being able to ping us in our pockets, being able to work from our phones, our bosses can send us emails. We're never unplugged. Children are absolutely overscheduled. It used to be parents said, kids, go outside and play. I'll see you when you know, it's dusk. Come back inside. Now they're overscheduled. They have constant activities. There's some research out of Europe that's saying that overscheduled children, when we scan their brains, it looks the same as a PTSD soldier. Because too many choices, too much abundance overwhelms the brain. So in this modern society, we all have too much stimulation for our brains. We have too much to be aware of, not just the things we have to do, but just the awareness of all the things. Every time you open your email and there's 10 billion emails there, our ancestors didn't ever have to have that experience. And so for our subconscious mind, that's not going away. We know. got to get to that stuff. Got to get to that stuff. So we're not hitting moments of doneness, of actual stillness. We're not teaching it. We're not talking about the benefits of it. We're not teaching our children how to do it. So most of us, whether we were traumatized as kids or not, we know how to think, but we're not human thinkings. We're human beings. We don't know how to just be in stillness and in silence. So that sets us up to have this overfunctioning, constant overwhelm of this processor. The brain is just this processor, and the brain will pick things up like this math problem. And there's so much in life that just we don't get to have the answer to. It doesn't work out like a nice little math problem where we can get the answer, tie it up with a little bow. But our brain picks up a, a dilemma again and just churns on that math problem again, even when there's No answer. So we don't know how to just be. It's why meditation is such a big part of anybody's recovery, of anybody really getting in touch with their body, of really starting to be able to manage overwhelm. Because most people are just operating from the time they wake up and start till the time they go to bed just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing the next thing, 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 the next thing. thing. And when we live looking for, I'll feel better when I finally get all this off my plate. I'll feel better when I finally make this much money and I get over there. I'll feel better when my kids are out of this stage. And then when we keep shifting our betterment to this imaginary future point, the problem is that we practice moving our wellness, our wholeness, our ability to our permission and ability to feel good to a future point. So even if we get to a point where we think, okay, this is going to happen for me, I'm finally going to finish school, then I'm going to be able to exhale, then you get there and you don't realize, uh oh, we've practiced this way of being that every time I even get there, it's well. then when this next thing happens, then I'll be calm, then I'll be comfortable, then I'll slow down. Then I'll be peaceful. Then I'll do that meditation stuff that I know is good for me, but I don't really have time to do. Yeah. And so we wind up in this lifetime of always kicking the can of our wellness, of our peace, of actually getting to know ourselves in an emotional way. We're a country that has so dismissed emotion because everybody wants scientific fact, that thinking mind. We have absolutely poo pooed and dismissed emotionality, the power of how humans actually learn from each other is not, oh, permission to learn this and integrate this because science said it's okay. That's not how humans have learned since the beginning of time. Humans have learned by passing their wisdom through story onto each other, learning through trial and error, and then passing down more story. So science has really poo-pooed, dismissed antidotal evidence. And to me, there's so much Power in antidotal evidence. There's so much power in sharing our human experience, but we can't study that in the way that science wants. We can't nail down enough factors to study it in a scientific way. We can't just isolate one emotion and study it. We don't feel one emotion at a time. So if we don't start valuing getting to know our emotional selves, what that means, and we can't do that if we don't slow down. It's not answering your question about overwhelm.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> did, I, did I overwhelm you with my overwhelm answer? <laughs> no, no, you make a lot of sense. And I think that a lot of us too will push off our feelings as too much or not feeling the appropriate feeling. And what you said about just getting through everything. And, you know, when I get to this point, I'll be happy. We train ourselves so then we can never relax. I I was in therapy while I was drinking and I had my therapist say, like I was complaining about my overwhelm all the time. And he was like, well, what would happen if you would just sit with it? And I was like, I don't know, am I literally like just like I was imagining myself and my brain was going like nuts the whole time like in there. Like, am I supposed to just like sit there and feel like a psycho? Like, what, mm-hmm. what do you want? What does that mean? Like, what? And, do, that, like, and that is
2: what's really broken in the human experience right now, in my opinion, is that the fact that that puzzles us. What do you mean? Just sit with it. That, the fact that we have no idea what that even is. Because toddlers know how to do this. If a toddler gets a boo-boo, right? Three-year-old gets a boo-boo. That toddler is going to wail. It's not going to hold back. It will scream. It will cry. It will snot. It will have tears running. Until that child is done. And then when that child is done crying and sobbing, they will wipe their little face. Take a deep breath. (sighs) Right? And then go right back to playing with the kids. Because that child hasn't yet learned from society to not feel what they're feeling, to stuff it, to cut that out, to stop crying. The first time, the, the first thing anybody says, if we cry is, oh, don't cry. Very first thing, universally, right? Oh, don't we, don't cry. As if crying is the worst possible thing that could happen in that moment. That is backwards. That is unnatural. It is wrong. And it is crazy pants that most of us have been conditioned to think that's normal. So one of the things that I have learned how to do, and it takes courage because as a highly sensitive person in the world, I suspect that you are, do you think you're a highly sensitive person? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So we think we're 15 to 20% of the population, which means we've been getting advice from 80 to 85% of the population that isn't wired like us. So because of that, and rightly so, They think we're our our stuff is too much. And that's fair. My own emotions are too much for myself sometimes. You know, all all this stuff of everything is a-okay in the modern world. I'm not too much, I'm just exactly enough. Yeah, I buy into that some. But it's also true that my goodness, we are too much for ourselves sometimes. So we also have to learn how to give other people grace. I have to know that my emotionality is intense. And for people that aren't wired so emotionally that's a lot. So uh, there's a balance there in learning how to be my true authentic self and not shut down in the face of difference. But also honor that I don't need their approval to be myself. We are a tribe of people pleasing, approval seeking, right? And that shoots us on the foot constantly, 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 constantly. If we pleased ourselves the way we try to people please everybody else, everything would be different for our lives.
0: How did you start like even knowing that you needed to do this work?
2: Uh, because I grew up in a house with a child predator and because my biological father had abandoned me, so I had severe abandonment trauma. It didn't happen when I was a baby. I was in elementary school, so I was bonded to him and then he disappeared. Then my mother married a predator and my mom was cold, kind of ice queen type woman. So I was so disconnected from my body, so dissociative that I thought I was super clumsy. I would try to walk through a doorway, like just just a normal doorway, something the average person doesn't even have a second thought about. And I would walk right into it. Um, It was Louisiana, so we're never, I'm in a sweater now, now I live in Denver, but never in a sweater down there. So people would go, Nikki, is someone beating you? Because I'd have bruises all over if I had shorts on, my legs, my arms. So that kind of trauma to take care of our own bodies, our our minds are so brilliant, you know how our computer screens our computers sort of go into sleep mode. It's like they're on, but they're off. they're not really processing, but they're on, but they're off. It's kind of a weird in between mode. It's kind of like our brains as it's as our own computer processor, will go into that mode when you're growing up with a lot of trauma. It's like all right, let's take her away from her body because bad stuff is going down. Let's just kind of turn her off, put her in sleep mode so she doesn't have to pay attention to what's going on, even though it's happening to her body, which is fascinating and brilliant. But the consequence of that is that it, our, our, my nervous system learned. And that's the hard thing about being creatures that learn. We learn some things so difficultly and, and so much the hard way, Right. And then other things we accidentally learn and we don't even know that we're learning it. So my body was learning to be disintegrated with itself. So I couldn't even really control it. I also was losing a lot of time. So to get to be somewhere on time, I'd have to try to be somewhere an hour and a half early. I was very raw. My startle response was ridiculous. I was irritable in a way that I knew didn't make sense for my, my present day, but I couldn't dial down that irritability. And then that just juices up the inner critic, you know, Oh, you snapped your tone was bad. What an asshole. Why did you do that? You know, that inner critic becomes a real bully. If you were raised by people who were very critical, it starts out as, as their voice and then it becomes your own. So all of these forces, it's never one thing. It's, I won't say never, it's rarely one thing. If we have one sort of trauma happen to us, like a, like a stranger assault, that, that's a one-time unique event. And our, and our being even though we may be traumatized and have some PTSD, sort of understands that that was a one time limited thing in a sense. When it is in the household that you grew up in, and you don't have to be hit, you don't have to be sexually violated. If you're highly sensitive, and you just grew up walking on eggshells, that's enough. Because it means every moment of your life, you were on guard for something to happen to you. And that's really no different than something happening to you in terms of the nervous system being activated. So we wind up with adrenal fatigue. We wind up raw. We wind up with a system that knows how to be hypervigilant. And it seems very smart. I, my hypervigilance used to feel like this inside of me. I'd walk in a room, and that hypervigilant part of me that I thought was taking care of me because it was trying to so hard. I would look for weapons. I would scan so that if something went down in the room, I knew what I could grab to defend myself. And then you can't pay attention to the other person talking if your body's doing that. So then I'd feel socially awkward. So I see a lot of people who go, I have social anxiety. I'm like, I'm not so sure yet. Let's see if we integrate you into your body and find some confidence and let go of some hypervigilance. You may be able to focus. And when you focus, you may not feel so anxious or embarrassed that you don't know what somebody said. Therefore, you don't have to have anxiety. And it's some of, the, some of the best moments in my work. I love those moments when someone shows up to me going, oh, my goodness, I really thought I had this disease. I thought I had this disorder. And all I needed was some coping strategies and some skills. And to understand that my body learned this overwhelmed, hypervigilant way of being And it's not going to just turn off because we say, hey, guess what? I don't like that anymore. I'd like you to stop that. That's really exhausting and making me raw and making my best self not come out. (laughs) Come on, like, stop it. You know, the nervous system doesn't go, oh, okay, or or I wouldn't have a profession. No. So the nervous system learns much more slowly, in a sense, than our mind. So, so many people have read all the books, listened to umpteen billion podcasts, and they can't understand why this knowledge that they have in their head doesn't translate to their body. And it's because we don't stop. So instead of thinking a thought, we have to learn how to feel a feeling. People go, well, what do I do with this feeling? Just like your therapist asked you. It's like you sit there and you feel it. That is so hard. I know. (laughs) and Really, it's... It's mind blowing. Like when we look at it this way, it really is the most natural thing. If we had only been toddlers allowed to express our emotions in a natural way, we wouldn't have all of this convoluted expectation about how we should be and how we should be able to handle this system.
0: Yeah. I love what you said, too, about walking on eggshells, because a lot of people probably li- just listening to this the past couple of minutes, they're probably thinking, well, you know, I didn't have anything really horrible happen to me. No one hit me. No one violated me. I was never in danger. But you don't have to have these huge um, things of trauma happen to you mm-hmm. to come out with hypervigilance. And and my startle response is pretty hardcore. You're saying that it's, it's a, it's a thing. (laughs) You can heal it. You can heal it.
2: Mine is almost completely gone. And I thought I would live with that for the whole rest of my life. I thought all of my symptoms were chronic because that's what conventional mental health wisdom says. Uh, I also take, um, at this point in my life, after being medicated in my twenties, I don't, I don't take any pharmaceuticals. And, And I think there's a real catch 22 with pharmacology and mental health. When I started in addiction, the the first year I was there, everybody that came in, we were trying to get them off of everything. By year two, everybody was getting prescribed things. And it's a big part of why I got laid off, because the main doctor in staffings would say, well, Nikki, how is your patient doing on these meds? And I'd say, doctor, I don't know how to answer that because you put them on three medications at the same time. So how am I supposed to know what drug's doing what? There are also no clinical trials on two drugs inside of a human body. They don't, they don't do clinical trials and testing with multiple drugs and the interactions of the drugs together. So that sets up an entire population to expect to need drugs to take care of their mental health or to manage their addictive symptoms, which is a a real bonkers kind of logic too. You know, We can surely have medications that help us get through different seasons, but I I am no longer willing to participate in that you have to be on a med forever because you just have this thing. I don't believe that human beings are that way. We have so much plasticity and we can do so much. This mind is powerful to learn coping strategies. And if you don't know how to just be, there's no medication in the world that will do that for you.
0: That. I think that is like the summary of this episode. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> if you yeah. don't know how to just be, and that is the hardest thing to learn is how to just be like, I couldn't even figure out like, what does that even mean? Yes. To be. Like, what yes. am I supposed to do? <laughs> yes. Yes.
2: And that, that is the consequence of a lifetime of trying to think through our thoughts. Mm hmm. And if we could go back in time, if I could go back in time to when you were a little girl, I'd want to sit on your shoulder like a little birdie and be like right now in this moment, it's okay to just feel that. Just feel it. Doesn't matter if those other people don't like your tears. Nobody has ever died in the history of being human from witnessing someone have emotion. That's true. But we have this fear about that. And then we carry guilt oh my gosh, I'm showing my emotions. So I didn't get there earlier. This is where I lost my train of thought. And this is less so since COVID has made things weird, but definitely before COVID, if I would like walk into a coffee shop, right? A a baby smiling face, you know, a a woman like really like in a beautiful outfit, just like feeling it just radiating might make me teary because I live from a place of gratitude and I'm looking for beauty. That's part of how I take care of myself. So I might tear up in public like that. And whereas younger me would go, I'm sorry, and try to hide it and wipe my face. At 41, I now know how to stand there. And when people see me and start to get a little uncomfortable, I can say, yeah, I'm crying and I'm really strong too. And I just sit there and I look at them and I watch their wheels turn on that. And you can see them puzzled like, huh, what? But she's crying. What is she saying? And then you see them kind of have this, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, she, she is okay having her feelings. So, and I, so I think that's an important part of being a highly sensitive person because where we fail ourselves is we want everybody else to tell us that having our emotional self is okay. We want that to happen first as a permission to then have our feelings and learn how to just be. And it's never, ever, ever going to work like that. The permission has got to come from ourselves that I count, I matter. And I get to feel the things that I am feeling in a natural way. And I will no longer apologize for that. And it's true that when you start doing that, you feel a little out of control. You feel a little messy. Well, you're never going to learn how to organize yourself, if you will, if you don't let all the mess out of the closet, right? That's how it feels to clean out a closet. there's that point where you take all the stuff out of the messy closet and you're like, oh no, why did I do this? (laughs) I should have just left it all in there and crammed it in there, a big old closet of crap. But you have to breathe through that moment and just start picking away at it, putting stuff back, throwing stuff away, donating some things. And then you start to feel better like, oh wait, actually this is better. I like this organized closet. Now I know what I have. Now I know what I'm dealing with. Now I can see what's in there. And it's the same with the human psyche. And it is tragic to the point of me wanting to use the word criminal that we are not taught these things in an age appropriate way when we are five and seven and ten and twelve. The fact that we don't have a dating class as freshmen in high school about our emotions, about our attachment wounds. Crazy pants. Crazy. We know this psychology. We've known this psychology since the 50s. We just don't operate from it. And I believe that is part of what has made modern relating. It's part of what's made this political anger and frustration and hatred and F you if you think something differently than I do, what has made it popular. We're seeing more victim mentality. Nobody can get sober if they have victim mentality. They can white knuckle it, they can be a dry drunk, but you cannot be a happy person and to watch sort of some modern advocacy things really tell you the right thing to be is the victim. Oh my gosh, it breaks my heart because I know those people that are buying into that messaging. My goodness, some of them aren't going to get out of it. Some of them will lose their lives over it to suicidal ideation and action. And some of them will be pissed off when they realize 10 years later that they were told because of somebody else's agenda to be the victim, to play that. And it will, take away from their life force, from their goals, from their peace. So we're doing some things in a really wrong way with our mental health here in America. That's why our, our teens are having crazy depression rates and it's not just COVID it was happening before COVID. So we have got to start, this is part of why I have a show. I know it's part of why you have a show. We've got to start breaking this stuff down and being willing to self challenge and being willing to look at, What have I been taught consciously, directly and indirectly that no longer serves me, even though the dysfunctional parts of our egos, they want that stuff. They want a good, good reason to go out and get get all messed up, right? You know, that's what the addictive logic wants. That's what those addictive gremlins want, whether it's pick up your phone again, you know, pick up your phone, pick up your phone, pick up your phone, or whether it's just drive by your favorite bar, like those gremlins whisper, They whisper. And if we don't learn how to just be and we never slow down, the system has no choice but to lean into escapism.
0: And how can we learn to to just be and like when you don't even know, like your analogy with the closet is exactly how I felt when I stopped drinking. I never thought that I was escaping anything Mm -hmm. either when I was drinking. It was just kind of what was happening. Right. And when I stopped drinking, it was like this huge, overwhelming closet of rage. It was mostly rage. There was some <laughs> other stuff in there, but it was mostly <laughs> mostly rage. And I looked at, it, I'm like, whoa, what is all, where did this come from? And, you know, for me, I worked through that with a therapist, but what can we do? Like, if we don't even know what we're feeling and everything is just like, it feels nuts and overwhelming and too much, like, what can we do to not bring that down with alcohol or something else self-destructive? I
2: think to start, you can start taking meditative moments. I kind of walked you through one in Mm -hmm. in this episode, in our talk. It's a permission that despite, and maybe it's a stubbornness, but it's bringing a stubbornness that, that says, despite whatever is wrong in my life right now, historically and in the present, I get to take a deep breath and tell my body, hey, we're going to figure this out. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know why. I don't know the path right now. But I know that it's figure outable. That's a big part of, of what we're missing in terms of our self-soothing, of how to deal with the unknowns. And so that's part of why, like you're naming, most of us sit down and when we learn, okay, so I'm supposed to feel my feelings, How? How? It's because we, we want to know. We don't want to do anything without the knowing. And so part of this is a permission that I can do this even when I don't know. And the, the truth is, we don't, we don't have a right to know all the things. We don't get to know all the things. So hopefully we can cultivate enough understanding and have enough insight to be able to see that. And to start very, very small, like right now in this moment, you can just do a hand on the heart and a hand on the belly and go, I'm willing to learn more about this. And that can be absolutely enough for today. You know, and maybe tomorrow you're in a coffee shop or you're in the grocery store, and maybe like my story, a little baby like winks at you or smiles or gives you sweet eyes. And you just tear up at the beauty, and maybe in that moment you remember my words. And you just allow yourself, well, it's going to make me have emotion right now. Yeah, so it's made, me too. I get to model it. I get to model it. And the reason <laughs> that you're up in that moment, my reason for it is that there's an inner child in there that got so many messages of don't do it. uh-uh, Don't feel push it down, smush it. Nope. We smush it and we go get a drink. That in that moment, when my inner child and yours hears me say, it's so okay. It's a message of I'm good enough. I'm good enough right now, even when I don't have it all figured out. And it's as if our inner child goes, oh my gosh, I want to cry in relief because I've been wanting you to know that and say that to me, I needed that from you for so long. So to me, in those moments, that's when we know we're really unlocking exactly what we need and we feel it. And that can be its own proof of if that feeling that we allowed both of ourselves to feel in this moment can give us that little cry and that little release, then there really is something to this feeling stuff. Even if every person around me is disinterested in exploring their own feelings, because I certainly come from one of those families. Certainly. I remember picking my profession in, in Southern Louisiana. We don't, we don't value self-development. We value good food and warmth. We'll bring you in our home. We'll stuff you till you feel like you're going to pop <laughs> or good food But we don't value growth. When I told people I want to be a counselor in Louisiana, people went, why? You want to hear people cry all day? I gonna had seven people and give me that reaction. Any other state people go, oh, that's lovely. You want to help people? (laughs) That's wonderful. So you have to understand the culture you come from, not just your family culture, but where you come from, what works for you. Take that with you and be willing, just willing. To examine the rest and be willing to let go of what no longer serves us. And that stuffing down, it never did serve us. Ever, ever, ever. It served other people, but not us.
0: And it never works either. We think that it works. It comes out sideways. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. You are amazing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You are too. I know you are celebrating two years sobriety, aren't you? Thank you.
2: Yeah, about one month ago almost. That's fantastic. Two years is a huge milestone. That, that's that's really when you start to know you're living in a sober way.
0: Yeah, it feels it feels very different. And I feel much more like alive and yes. in tune with myself. And there's still a lot more work. Like I've been doing it recently. Like everything you're saying, I'm like, oh my God, I've been doing this. Yes. No, and we all
2: do. If we walk this path, we do. And, and I want to take this opportunity to name this too, because you are fully sober, Okay. I want people to know that you can practice harm reduction too. You know, that total abstinence from any substance is absolutely on the table and available. And if your gut is saying you need that, go for it. Absolutely go for it. If addiction as a disease works for you and something about that language helps you, use it. If something about that language doesn't, let it go. Like allow yourself to take in all things what works for you and dismiss the rest Because we're all a little different, but we're all super similar too. And we can really learn from each other. And it's so okay to have that contrast. In my own life, I, I want people to know this. I grew up going to bars at 16. I know that that is highly unusual anywhere else in the country except Louisiana. So there were times in my life where I could drink three quarters of a bottle of Jameson, where I absolutely drank like an alcoholic. I don't identify that way. And today I don't drink naturally because I didn't like how it was making me feel. I heard somebody years ago say, you ever wonder why they called alcohol spirits? And they said, because long ago, they figured out it takes away your spirit. And that just, that was one of those things that my intuition was like, oh, Nikki, this is for you. And I thought, yeah, and that's how it feels. That is how it feels. So it's not that I never have a drink. I got married in February, somebody bought us a bottle of champagne, I had a glass. But you can meet when you get to know yourself, you will know what you need to do for yourself on the journey. But you can't know if you don't willingly show up to really meet yourself where you are and to open up to learning from other people.
0: I agree with you completely. And I started my um, emotional maturity journey while I was still drinking. That was the therapist that was telling me to sit with it that I didn't understand. But I was trying So you can absolutely, even if you're drinking the way that I was drinking and you're really like going for it all the time, you can still do this work and benefit from this work and maybe address the drinking later during, like you don't have to wait till you get to two years sober like me, so you can address it at any time. Yes, you totally can. And well, there's something in mental health too, that
2: what what they teach Mm -hmm. counselors, maybe it's a little different now in school. But what they teach counselors typically is that you can't have any kind of counseling if somebody is using anything. I don't necessarily agree with that, especially if you have a trauma history. I'm not a believer in demonizing escapism, drugs, or alcohol. When I look back at my story, the truth that makes people very uncomfortable, but my truth is that I'm not going to demonize that part of my life. I don't know if I would be here alive if I hadn't numbed myself out for part of it. But in the same way that, you know, diapers are okay for babies and toddlers for a little while in life. But there's a point where if I was doing this interview and was still in a diaper, like, yeah, I just, it's uncomfortable for me to learn how to use the bathroom. I'm just gonna rock a diaper for the whole rest of my life. That is no longer okay. And it's gets kind of similar. You know, like when our 20s are our hardest. 20s suck. Oh my God, 20s suck. I was so pissed off in my 20s about people telling me that your teens and 20s are the best days of your life. <laughs> I fundamentally disagree. Yep, I, Like really like that thinking almost had me taking my life at times. It is the worst, hardest. You're trying to figure out how to make money. If you come from a family with a lot of dysfunction, you're trying to figure out how to have your foot in their dysfunction and have your foot out and you don't know what the hell you're doing. You don't have the money for a whole lot of good therapy yet. Let's be real. It is a very difficult, hard time. And in this modern era, if they pump you full of five meds, you're not going to be able to feel who you really are. So there's a whole lot that is a struggle for being in your twenties on top of this new victim mentality that's being celebrated. So we don't have to demonize. Okay. But we also have to be able to realize and step back and go, What do I want for my life? Is this a season? Am I going to allow this to be a season or am I going to allow this to take years off my life to shut me down, to make my heart hard? And all substances do that. All substances take us away from actually being able to feel each other because they numb us out and they don't just numb out the bad shit. They numb out the good shit. And none of us know that when we're inside of it. Cause we think we're having
0: fun until we yeah, And then it feels like you can't even survive without it. And in truth, you're not surviving with it.
2: You're not. You're not. And that's when I think thriving mode happens for people. Mm-hmm. And I can say this too on here. I have turned down podcast requests when they pair a drink with an episode. I've, I've turned on about three shows. I am not into this. Haha, ha, it's so funny. Mom's in wine. Let's drink a whole lot of wine. Let's constantly have a drink. I think that's bringing us back to sort of like a Mad Men 1950s permission. And we don't need that. Women, we have heart disease issues. We, we die of heart attacks in our 50s. As women, a lot of that has to do with alcohol. So we need to really, really own. I'm, I'm a personal ownership Guru, if anything, that is the way out. And there's so much power when you just own it. And learning how to sit with yourself is such a beautiful first step. And all of us can do it. You really, yeah, really I can now.
0: Even though it sounded like the most ridiculous, stupidest, roll my eyes at advice. <laughs> <laughs> now I know yeah. what <laughs> it means. Yeah, what kind of, <laughs> of canceling crap is this? Yeah, this kind of is I'm paying for this crap.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, if you have a good therapist, they piss you off like that a little bit. Like that's, that, that's the thing. Like we have to allow ourselves to be challenged, challenged, challenged in good ways. And we can handle that challenge. And when we, when we recognize, you know, anything that we've lived through, we've already survived it. If we can help ourselves recognize that and internalize that, then we can also give ourselves permission that it is time to thrive and to really thrive We've got to be able to have our emotions. We can't just stuff them, pour a bunch of drinks or whatever substances on top.
0: You are doing all of the things. I'm going to link a couple of my favorite episodes of yours um, below in the show notes for everybody to check out. Very good. If you haven't listened to emotional badass yet, you need it in your life. But you do a lot of different things. So where can people connect with you if they want more of you? You can find me at
2: emotionalbadass.com. That's probably the easiest because you can figure out how to spell those words. My last name has a whole lot of vowels, vowels <laughs> in it, but you can, you can find me at NikkiEisenhower.com too. Um, you can be on my waiting list to work with me. Um, every October, I just finished the sixth year. I teach a six week boundaries class and you ask me where to start. Most people don't know what boundaries are. (laughs) So when people come to my course, people will go, ah, I think this is a boundary. I've been setting boundaries. Nobody really knows what a boundary is. Boundary is not controlling what somebody else does at all. At all. You don't get to control other people. So learning how to have our own emotional boundaries with ourselves is a big, big foundational passion of mine. So you can be on my newsletters. You can listen to the show. I'll talk about that. You can't even sign up for it now for next year. But you can know that I do that. We also have a Patreon where I have exclusive episodes. So if you want more from me, there's lots that you can tap into.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And everything will be down below. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Nikki. This was, I feel like I could talk to you for like 10 hours. Oh, we totally
2: could. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for doing this. Like People need to see more people living sobriety and enjoying it and showing that as thriving. So I am so appreciative of you that I can now direct people to you too to go go see her thrive because you can be there too. Thank you. So thank you for modeling that in
0: the world. Thank you. That means so much. You're welcome. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you.